I'm Michael Avery, and you're listening to an interview I conducted for Classic Business on Classic FM 102.7. Welcome to Classic Polytonomy tonight, the program that really brings you closer to the thought leaders and industry insiders shaping the debates in the political economy. And uh, we're continuing the theme of our legal week with a look at the immigration regulations, which uh, have created quite a brouhaha. Now, um, it's it's not a problem that is unique to this country, the fact that uh, we're looking at national security, sovereignty, work opportunities for South African citizens. Uh, there's been an ongoing political debate in the U.S. around immigration, too. Uh, Pre- President Barack Obama recently asked Congress for um, almost $4 billion to cope with the flood of immigrants from Central America who are illegally crossing the U.S. border. And um, the U.S. administration reckons that about 51000 thousand unaccompanied children have entered the USA since October alone. Now, uh, to discuss the regulations, the process behind the reform, and and whether there's room for improvement and and issues around capacity to implement them, or or whether it's just a a bit of inertia and resistance to change as we normalize with the rest of the world, it's a great pleasure to welcome Lemi Jean-Pierre, Senior Associate at Faskin Martineau. Good, Good evening. evening. Good evening, Michael. And uh, on the line, we have Zaida Ibrahim, who's a director in the Immigration Department at ENS Africa. Great to have you back on the show, Zaida. Hi, Michael. And, Good to be back. And Stuart James is also on the line, who's the director of uh, Integrate Immigration and Immigration Consultancy. Uh, good evening, Stuart. Good evening, Michael. How are you? I'm uh, doing exceptionally well. Uh, that uh, trip over to Orange Farm earlier in the in the day uh, managed to stamp all over my cynicism, which happens in this industry from time to time. Now, uh, Lemise, let's look at the reason for the reforms of our immigration system. Uh, you know, as I said in my intro, it's it's not an issue that uh, we grapple with um, alone in the global community. Uh, where where did this all start, and and what was government's intention? Well, Michael, you South Africa really hasn't had very stringent immigration regulations in place up until today, and with with those regulations came the fact that people could enter and exit South Africa fairly easily, and in line with immigration, well, global immigration standards, this caused quite quite a few security concerns for 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 government and the need arose to reform this area of the law in order to bring it up to the standards um international standards with immigration and um uh, Stuart i mean you you you're an immigration consultant uh, did, did you see from the beginning, um, and when I say from the beginning, I mean this, this process did all kick off in, in 2011 when the Department of Home Affairs confirmed that there would be um, changes and it announced the amendments to the Immigration Act of 2002. Did, did you foresee such far-sweeping changes at the time? Um, yeah, I think, as Lemmy said, there's been a definite need for some changes. I think the thing that surprised us and most people in the industry and and obviously several thousand potential or immigrants um, is the speed with which it was actually implemented in the end and the the sort of lack of opportunity for public opinion. 
now, Zahida, let's go through some of the main changes and uh, in layman's language, if you please. Um, uh, certainly one of the most important changes appears to be that you cannot apply for a new visa or permit uh, while in South Africa. You must actually return to your country of origin and apply there. What's the upshot here? Well, the, the need to control or for government to control its interface with the individuals who are applying for a permit really has resulted in the setting up of various offices for receipt of visa applications. They're known as the VFS offices. It is in keeping with international standards. The, the challenge, though, is that with South African High Commissions being situated few and far apart, very often we find that applicants don't even have a High Commission or Consular Office to apply to in their country of origin. Now, what the law provides for is that they can then apply to their closest office um, or their closest consular office. The challenge is that it requires application in person. Uh, now, and it's been mentioned, you know, countries like China, which only, you know, have um, uh, offices that are thousands of kilometers apart, uh, and, and, and the difficulty that that presents. But what's the solution then? If, if this is bringing us into line with the way um, uh, this is dealt with elsewhere in the world, um, it's, you know, certainly it's, it's very difficult to make a case against uh, the department in this instance. Well, a visa when issued, Michael, is a permission to, pre to present oneself at the port of entry. Mm. To my mind, if there is any concern post the issuance of the visa, the applicant in any event will present himself to the border post for entry. If there is anything that leads to suspicion, one can only assume that that would be picked up beforehand and can be flagged at that stage. Also, what we'd proposed to government before the implementation of the new regulations was, in fact, that the standard be submission via courier or other postal me method, and that government was then entitled to ask for an interview if there was a reason to do so, as may have been apparent from the documentation and other submissions made on behalf of the applicant. Uh, Stuart, uh, how, how would you respond to that? Before we get into, into your, your legal um, uh, case, uh, do, do you think that that is um, the correct reading of the situation? And, and certainly, uh, do, do you think the department would be willing to, to move on, on such an issue when it is the norm globally? Um, I unfortunately can't speak for the department, um, but uh, I agree with 100% with um, the suggested solution. Um, and I'd possibly take it one step further as well. It's not just a case of presenting oneself with some of these missions abroad now. You're also having to go in and also pick up the, uh, the visa decision. So if you're sat in China at one end of the country, um, it can involve two trips. Uh, we've already had reports of Chinese tour groups uh, cancelling and, and going to other destinations um, simply because of the, the fact that it's two internal flights and an awful lot of expense to not just present yourself but also to, to then pick it up. Um, no issue with people presenting themselves in theory. But there mm. are some practical reasons around it, as was just said. Mm. Mm. No, absolutely. We also see requirements for in-person biometric data collection uh, for tourist visas, uh, as well as the issue around unabridged birth certificates. Um, uh, take me through, Lemise, take me through the need for biometric data collection. I mean, that, that seems a bit onerous. Well, the reason why you would want biometric data is 
because when when people enter and exit South Africa, how it's been beforehand is that your immigration practitioner could go and submit your application and pick your application up as well. In that process, the Department of Home Affairs, other than information that you put into your work permit application or other visa application form, doesn't have any any um, data or that is relevant to you specifically, so fingerprints. Um, so they don't know whether or not the work permit application or other visa application um, is in fact linked to a particular um, person. And mm -hmm. the effect of that is that it results in a lot of fraudulent cases coming through um, in circumstances where people are, are in could be in possession of a permit that is not actually for them. But what about certified uh, copies of documentation where one has to present the oneself at a police station with one's ID book, get it, uh, a copy certified by, by an officer uh, of the law um, and, and the old way that uh, we used to do things? Uh, was that just too open to abuse, misuse and fraud? I think that that's the, the, the reason underlying the, this, this particular change. Um, we've, we've, we've had matters uh, where a, one, uh, one of our clients had, um, was in possession of a, of, a, of, a, of a permit. He had used an immigration practitioner to obtain the permit. Um, however, in leaving the country and coming back in a particular instance, he was stopped at the border and the, his, his permit was actually challenged as being fraudulent. Um, he had not actually been to the, the Department of Home Affairs to actually submit his application or pick it up. He had used somebody in between. So the, the, the issues re re surrounding um, you could say unscrupulous mm. um, people, particular to immigration practitioners, is an, is an issue. Sorry. Uh, no problem. No, uh, uh, Stuart, um, you, you're a director of um, Intergate, okay. not Integrate, as I introduced you, um, and uh, that's a, you're, you're an immigration um, consultant, basically. Now, uh, would you say that there are many unscrupulous um, operators uh, within the immigration uh, arena? I would say, unfortunately, um, there are some, um, and that's not just immigration practitioners. It's also people professing to be experts. Uh, unfortunately, as well, in some cases, attorneys. Mm. Um, the, the reality is we, we do have a situation where corruption has happened with the Department of Home Affairs, and I don't think anybody can deny it. What's, what's very strange about it is that in most countries around the world, one of the ways of dealing with that is to highly regulate the people who actually are giving advice, be them immigration practitioners, be them consultants, be them attorneys. Um, what we saw with this Immigration Act uh, was the, the, the regulatory side of it that the DHA was responsible for completely took away. Well, it's, so now it opens yeah. the industry up even worse than it ever was before. It does mean that anyone can now represent you at Home Affairs, um, yeah. uh, which I see has been viewed certainly by some in the legal fraternity as a big blow to the integrity uh, of the system in South Africa and, and leaves one scratching one's head because we, do, we are fond of rather uh, a bit more regulation than a bit less regulation in this country. Uh, but w w why, I mean, you, I'm going to ask you to speculate here, but, but what, yeah. what would be the reasons under, uh, you know, behind such a change? It, 
Michael, the, the strange thing is whenever the question has been asked, we've always gone back to the fact that they want to interact with the client. And I think everybody who's a professional in this industry agrees that for long-term immigration, and, and I'll, I'll discount a two-week tourist visa from that, if I may, mm. the applicant should present themselves and they should take biometrics. The reality is once that has happened, the client has now, I'm calling it a client, the applicant has now sat there, they've been verified. Um, and there's no other reason that you would have to see that person again. I cannot think of a single reason um, why you would not regulate the industry. I don't know any other country that does not regulate the, the, the industry. Um, the only thing you can think of is that, unfortunately, maybe we hold them accountable um, sometimes, and that we're not welcome when we are made them accountable. Well, very interesting point indeed. Now, Stuart, take me through um, the court case uh, that, that you currently involved in. And uh, I, I believe it's attempting to get the department really to do its job. And you represent over 900 immigrants. Yeah, this is the second time in two years, unfortunately, that we've had to go to court with the Department of Home Affairs. And it's a last resort. It's not something we want to do. And we appreciate their job's not the easiest job in the world. Um, unfortunately, the situation's obviously got worse, uh, as we've seen with the uh, withdrawal of Directive 43. Um, we have clients that have been waiting four, five, six, seven months, um, and no permit decision is coming out. Stuart, um, uh, Di- Directive 43, sorry for the listeners out there who are not uh, imbued sorry. in the jargon of the industry. Apologies. No um, problem. Basic. In layman's terms, what it was was once waiting for a permit or visa decision, um, you were allowed to travel in or outside of South Africa. Mm. Um, almost, if you like, an acceptance of the fact that it wasn't going to be through in that period of time. Yes. Now, the, the long-term nature of that was always in question and it wasn't correct. However, it was removed with one day's notice. So what you got was an awful lot of people sat in South Africa who had legally applied at the time for permits and visas here that can no longer leave South Africa as they'll be declared undesirable and banned. Well, that I mean, that is certainly not not the intention, surely, um, of of these changes. How how uh, has the department responded uh, to to your your urgent interdict? Um, uh, basically, they'll oppose, um, which is a, a normal legal scenario, um, and we'll we'll find out more the first first week of August when we appear in court. And that's uh, when your your day, your day in court will be first week of August. We'll, we will certainly be uh, following that quite closely. Now, tell me, Stuart, how many calls are you fielding uh, with regards to these regulations on a daily basis? We literally, it's calmed down a little bit in the last week or so, but I would say we were over 100 calls a day at one stage in the game. I mean, we literally stopped counting when we got to in the thousands. Um, I think the first two weeks were absolute chaos. Uh, and I mean, this, it's certainly uh, not a normal reaction to a new system. Are, are we not? We're not just seeing the, the the normal inertia to change it. I mean, there there is quite clearly um, uh, uh, some genuine concern out there that um, uh, people are going to be declared undesirable who have been in the country um, uh, sometimes for you know over over the required time to be considered a citizen uh, with with family members. We we've, we've seen that happen as well. Uh, well, what are we seeing? Let's turn our attention to the work permits and scarce skills section of these regulations. Zahida, perhaps you can take us um, uh, through through us. We see it's the end of quota and exceptional skills work permits and, um, and also renewals. What have these been replaced with? 
The introduction of a new critical skills category has been quite welcomed. Um, the critical skills list is geared toward addressing skill shortages in areas that have been identified by government um, as not having sufficient South African skills. So there has been a move to try to facilitate these applications of suitably skilled applicants. The challenge is it still remains fraught with procedural difficulty. Some of the bodies that have been identified to deal with certain aspects of such an application, um, to, for example, give accreditations of skills and qualifications. Um, those bodies do not yet have in place any sort of procedure for processing such applications. And in fact, some of the bodies identified by government have indicated that they weren't approached and they've not put any mechanisms into place and are therefore not dealing with the accreditation process as they are meant to in terms of the immigration regulations. What? I mean, that, that's just an absolute recipe for disaster here. We, we're going to have such a bottleneck while we wait for the um, institutional capacity to be uh, uh, established. Uh, why, why the haste then? Why was there no um, phasing in period uh, uh, for 12 months or so as people um, develop uh, or as the department develops the capacity and, and, and people familiarize themselves um, with the regulations? Is it because they've been sitting in limbo since 2011? Well, I would assume that the, the proper way to have dealt with this would have been to, to, if they wanted to pass the regulations with urgency, to at least have provided for a transitional period. And no such provisional period was provided for, which means that the regulations were published on, in its final format on the 22nd of May and came into force just a few days later on the 26th of May, giving everyone very little time to prepare. Um, the proper implementation of legislation generally would involve a transitional period, particularly when, when such implementation has such far-reaching consequences. Uh, Lemise, um, we we hear that obviously we need this uh, transitional arrangement. What does it mean now for current holders of of skills work permits, both quota and exceptional? Will they be eligible for the new critical skills permit automatically? It depends on whether or not their particular skill falls within the critical skills list that Zahida mentioned. Mm. The critical skills list um, was only published on the 3rd of June some two weeks after the actual amendments while the regulations came in. So provided that, that um, an applicant who formerly would have been allowed to apply for an exceptional skills or quota work permit qualifies um, for one of the short, uh, scarce skills detailed in the critical skills list, they would be, they would be entitled to apply. However, as Zahida has mentioned, the, the, the process is fraught with procedural challenges um, and the, by bringing third parties such as the Department of Labor and the Department of DTI into the work permit application process um, without properly consulting with them beforehand has actually brought everything to a grinding halt. So how that pans out going forward and the speed with which such applications are going to be processed is still um, 
Uh, well, we'll see. Maybe we watch the space. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to to predict what will happen there. You know, it the, the the entire thing looks like it's destined to really just fold up in a, in a bit of a heap. We we have seen uh, the minister come out and say that uh, there are certain things they will not budge on, uh, but but other areas where the department. Um, is, in his words, willing to engage with anybody who has concerns. Uh, do you think that uh, that is a signal that uh, the department is open to, to providing for a bit more of a transitional period? Uh, do, do you get the sense from the tone of that statement that uh, that is on the table? Well, Michael, the tone is quite vague because... Three days after the um, amendments came into effect, um, the, um, the minister had stated that the, the regulations weren't cast in stone and that they would see how things would pan out going forward. However, um, I, I just note, I, I noted a press statement um, yesterday at the opening of the VFS office in Ravonia where the minister said that they weren't going to be looking at it. They were only going to be looking at issues related to implementation. Um, so where where the intention is going forward is a little bit unclear. Mm. We also have to bear in mind, though, however, that the minister... Um, has come into this office um, fairly recently. The, 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 the regulations were, were published on the 22nd of, of May, as Ahida mentioned, when the former minister, um, Ms. Naledi Pandor, was still the minister. So I think at the moment, um, my, my feeling and what I gauge from the different statements that have come out in the press is that this really is um, a, an, a, the, the, the department is really treating this in a, in a in, on almost a case-by-case basis, which is not ideal. Um, you can't regulate by um, exception. However, I do think that, they, that, that the minister is aware of um, the, the, the problems with, implementa- with implementing mm. the regulations. And the fact that he is open to, to, to listening to these concerns is welcome, and we we have to take some hope from that that there there can be constructive discussion around how these these regulations are implemented by the administration. Well, I, th- I do hear what you're saying about the two statements uh, being vague and perhaps a little bit ambiguous. What does implementation mean? Uh, but uh, uh, one would one would assume that implementation falls squarely within the capacity issues, the bottlenecks and the, and the kind of uh, constraints that may be faced within the system and the various departments. And, and that, to me, screams out a transitional period in order to sort this entire thing out. It's in nobody's best interest here when we we've got a Minister of Tourism sticking up his hand, who's also new to his portfolio, Derek Hanekom, and saying, wait a minute, perhaps we're actually doing ourselves a disservice here. Yeah, well, we saw a transitional period come in with regard to um, the submission of birth certificates, unabridged birth certificates um, for minor children who travel, um, and there the department realized the, the, uh, how severe that would be for, for people um, if those regulations came into 
came in with immediate effect. So that's why I say it, I think that, they, that, that it, it is going to be reactive and it depends on the severity of the challenge that the department is facing. Mm. Stuart, uh, you've been listening uh, to all of that and uh, I've, I've got one or two more questions on the business side, specifically relating to um, intra-company transfer work permits and, and how those are going to be handled in this, uh, under this new regime and what impact that might have on uh, multinational companies who have operations here. Yeah, I think um, the intercompany as well. There's 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 nothing in there that one wants to complain about. In fact, now they've extended the term to four years, which is good news. Mm. Um, it allows companies to plan much better. Um, I think it's also you know the general scenario regarding companies and work permits, work visas is entirely correct in in so much as you know they're now looking for those companies to plan to replace the foreign personnel which is good immigration practice. Um, that's what we want to see. We want to see needed foreigners coming in um, into skilled positions, but we also want to see South Africans being trained to take up those skilled positions. Um, so intercompany along with critical skills, absolutely fine. Yeah, and, and it just underlines the fact that, uh, you know, from speaking uh, to you, we did want to have the department on and uh, we, you know, we're trying to be as equitable as we can. And it's not just a, a question of uh, inertia to change. Uh, there, you know, there are some really good elements to, to the regulations. It's, it's just the few that perhaps haven't been uh, that well conceptualized in terms of their implementation. I do, I do get the sense from um, the Center for Constitutional Rights that there might be a constitutional concern, Zahida, and that's particularly when the regulations are read with the Immigration Act um, and, and it stipulates that uh, various institutions, including banks and estate agents, private hospitals, uh, should really ascertain whether foreigners are in the country legally or not. And, um, and, and should their status be illegal, then those institutions are obliged to inform the DG. Uh, but I, it doesn't say anything about whether or not they can be treated or, or, or treatment should be um, um, withheld from them. And, uh, you know, one, one I, I suppose, questions whether this is um, in contravention of Section 27 of the Constitution. The fact of the matter is that with any constitutional issue, what it comes to is a matter of balance. It's the balance of the right of the individual versus the, the or rather the, the protection that is sought in the constitution. Mm. So one would look effectively at what, is, what one is trying to achieve by an infringement of a person's right, for example, to privacy or any other right. But what I must say, Michael, is that the constitutional issues, I think, with, with the new regulations are perhaps not limited to such issues as the disclosure of details and, and effectively the need to report. I, I think there are other issues that one needs to consider as well. Yes. For example, there is now a restriction on unmarried partners who now need to have resided together for a period of two years before they qualify as life partners. Um, so, so looking at existing constitutional law, there, there seems to be a recognized right for spouses to not be deprived of their right for cohabitation, whereas the, the law as it has been implemented, and I know okay. one of the strong criticisms of the regulations prior to its final publication was that there may be an, a constitutional infringement surrounding the rights of spouses or life partners. And I think one needs to look more carefully at that sort of aspect as well. 
It's an interesting point you raise. Do you know of anyone who is um, looking at perhaps taking up the constitutional uh, challenge and and um, uh, and uh, taking it uh, all the way to the constitutional court? We've not been involved in any such matters as yet, but I suspect that they they will well unfold. Um, at the moment, what it serves to do is it serves as a, det- as a deterrent to skilled foreigners coming into South Africa very simply mm. because if they're not married, which, married, which is often the case these days, um, it's very unlikely that they're going to want to migrate without their life partners. Stuart? Uh, I, I totally agree with that one. Um, we've heard a few rumours, um, so to watch this space. And I think the other one that we've also, um, that has come across our desk is a number of um, immigration practitioners um, that have some issues around the fact that, in theory, that their livelihood could have been threatened um, without any consultation whatsoever from a previously regulated government occupation. Um, as, as a registered immigration practitioner. Now, I've got a question here, listening to all of this. What happened to the regulatory impact assessment? Surely that should have uh, revealed all of these things before we passed this into law. I don't know, um, Michael, and maybe my, my, um, my, my two colleagues in the industry do. Um, we were involved in a brief consultation um, around the critical skills list with uh, the person that it was outsourced to. Mm. Um, but I don't know of any other immigration company who was involved in the discussions whatsoever in terms of the new Immigration Act. Well, uh, I've got Lamise shaking her head uh, opposite me. Zahida, uh, do you know? There's been very little consultation indeed. We, we have, What we did is we lobbied and did submissions not only on behalf of, of ourselves in the industry, but on behalf of, for example, various business chambers and the like, mm. to try and get the feedback that was needed to government. In terms of government coming out to seek that consultation, um, I think that there were bodies that were consulted. I know the Department of Trade and Industry and Department of Labor, for example, were consulted, but I don't think that the consultation was necessarily as extensive as it ought to have been and certainly not as extensive within the industry as it ought to have been because who better to know what the practical implementation difficulties are going to be than the persons that are charged with implementing them on behalf of their clients. Well, it'll it'll be interesting watching this all unfold. And Stuart, we'll certainly keep one eye peeled on that court case, which is coming up in a few weeks' time. And uh, just to remind listeners, we did um, uh, invite the department onto the panel tonight uh, to discuss this with us. But obviously, it was their budget vote today, and uh, they they were quite busy. Uh, I'd like to thank my guests tonight, uh, Lamy Jean Pierre, senior associate, associate at Faskin Martino. Thanks so much for coming into studio. And on the line, uh, Zahida Ibrahim, director in the Immigration Department at ENS Africa and Stuart James, Director of Intergate Com- Immigration. Tomorrow night we'll look at over-indebtedness and how the recently passed National Credit Amendment Bill is attempting to address one of the country's biggest uh, problems. Join me then for the third instalment of Legal Week right here on Classic Polytonomy. Uh, and that's all we have for you tonight, folks. From me, Michael Avery, and the rest of the team, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful evening. Smooth mood, smooth sound, relax with the classics.
Classic FM 102.7.